Welcome to the Dead Letters Podcast. I am your host, VP Morris. Since this is the first episode, I wanted to take some time to explain what you're about to hear. The Dead Letters Podcast is a suspenseful audio drama focusing on the lives of five women who, over the course of many years, have received mysterious letters that warn of death and destruction if they don't listen to what the sender says. Season one will focus on Fiona Weatherly, a 21-year-old college student in our current time. We will follow her as she must deal with the chaos that comes with receiving her dead letters. Now, a little bit about me. I'm an award-winning horror and thriller writer residing just outside of New York City. I am the sole writer and producer for this podcast, and I would absolutely love to get to know my listeners. So you can connect with the show at Dead Letters Pod on both Twitter and Facebook. Or you can connect with me at T Write Repeat, that's T-E-A-W-R-I-T-E, repeat, on Twitter, Instagram, and Minds.com. If you like the show, you can support it by donating via PayPal. If you're listening to this on the day this episode comes out, I plan on releasing the second episode in two days, on Thursday. From there, I will release one episode per week on Tuesdays, until the season wraps around Halloween. You can find episodes on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, and Spotify. I will be posting regular updates to social media so you can stay up to date with new episodes that way as well. Now, let's get started. The Dead Letters Podcast. Episode 1, White Meat. My name is Fiona Weatherly, and all I ask before I die or lose myself completely is that you listen to what I've been through over the last few months. I don't know who I am anymore or what I've become, but I know that she is coming for me again. She won't stop. Not until I agree to continue what she has started, and the men, they're after me too. They want me to keep quiet, so this recording must live on in case they get what they're after. I can't call anyone to save me. No one is supposed to know where I am. I can't call my parents. They are in hiding, or may have already been executed. My friends won't be much help, and I can't even rely on the man I was supposed to marry because he betrayed me in one of the worst ways. So that's why I must turn to you, this outdated tape recorder I found in my hideout, my family's cabin. Everything is so strange, but I have to tell you what I've seen, or I fear I'll go to my grave with this knowledge. And I guess the best place to start this strange story is the day I received my first dead letter. It was a Saturday. I was the only one up in the small, cottage-like house I rented with my two roommates. I was sipping my coffee and mindlessly flipping through my Instagram feed when there was a knock at the door. I jumped out of my seat with excitement, thinking it was Paul, who was notorious for coming over early. Instead, I opened the door to see a woman. She was middle-aged and of Asian heritage. Light gray streaks ran through her black hair, and her face was stern like she had survived something. But. Just barely. Can I help you? I asked, thinking she was lost or maybe trying to sell me something. Are you Fiona Weatherly? She asked me, her voice empty of emotion. Yes, that's me. The woman was dressed to the nines in ironed navy slacks, a dark sweater, and a cream-colored leather jacket that matched her Chanel purse and Manolo heels. Around her neck, an Hermes scarf was tied so tightly, I wondered how she was breathing. The woman opened the gold clasp of her purse and pulled out an envelope. It was wrinkled and yellowing. She thrusted it towards me, practically forcing it in my hand. I took it from her and felt the worn paper on my fingertips. It was addressed to me, all right. 
Someone with perfect looping penmanship wrote my name and address. Up top, a black five-cent stamp bearing Lincoln's profile was stuck to the envelope, with a wavy postmark running through it. Doesn't it cost more than five cents to send a letter? I asked her. She gave a little laugh, but her face didn't smile. Not in 1875, she replied. I looked down at the letter again, trying to make sense of it all. I can't tell you too much, she said, grasping my arm. Open it, read it, and for God's sakes, listen to Charlotte. Who's Charlotte? I asked. The woman dropped her eyes, let go of my arm, and walked away. I stood there, staring after her as she ducked into her Mercedes and sped away. I caught sight of her license plate, and it burned into my memory. New York, FNLG 105. Fiona, what are you doing out here? A voice behind me called. It was Morgan, one of my roommates. She stood on the porch, her blonde hair in a messy bun, and last night's eyeliner creating smoky rings around her eyes. Just checking the mail, I replied. Her face perked up. Anything for me? Nope. I turned the envelope over so she couldn't see the old stamp in the strange cursive writing. Then what's that? She asked. Just a late birthday card from my aunt, I lied, shoving the thing in my back pocket as we walked inside. So, it's Saturday morning and you know what that means. She sat down at the kitchen table and flashes me a bright smile. Pancakes, I asked, knowing what she wanted. Hell yeah, they're the best hangover food around. Plus, no one makes them as good as you do, she said, trying to make herself look as endearing as possible. I conceded. A year of living with Morgan taught me that it was easier to give her what she wanted than to hear her whine about it for hours on end. A few minutes later, I had thick white batter sizzling on a cast iron pan, but I could barely focus on what was in front of me. My head was filled with a million questions. Who was that woman? What is in that letter? And who the hell is Charlotte? Fiona, cried Morgan. You're burning them. What? I looked down to find that the three round discs I'd placed on the pan were now black and burned. The air filled with smoke and I started to cough as I removed the pan from the stove. I wasn't fast enough. The alarm went off. Shit! Morgan stood up on her chair and waved a towel in front of the smoke detector. I rushed over to the sliding door that led to our small backyard and opened it, letting the smoke waft out. Footsteps came running down the stairs. Do you guys mind? I'm trying to study, hissed Grace, my other roommate and best friend of seven years. Sorry, Morgan and I said in unison. You're studying at 10 a.m. on a Saturday? I asked her as I dumped the wasted pancakes into the trash. Of course, she said with her arms crossed. Dude, you need to relax once in a while, said Morgan. Do you not understand that midterms are 10 days away? 10 days! Do you have any idea how much work I have to do before then? Grace glared at Morgan, who should have known by now how intense Grace took her studies. How else was she going to get into Yale Medical School anyway? Calm down, Grace. She didn't mean anything by it. We just want you to have a little fun with us more, I told her. I can't have fun right now. Maybe later. Maybe in 10 days. She brushed her choppy brown bangs out of her face. Okay, I said not wanting to get her worked up into a frenzy about schoolwork again. I'll be in my room if you need me, but please try to stay quiet, she said before turning around and stomping back up the stairs. 
Okay, will do. Sorry for trying to eat breakfast, Morgan called after her in a mocking tone. Stop it, be nice, I scolded her. Oh, come on. I know you're sick of how uptight she is. Didn't you tell me the other day that you missed the old Grace? Asked Morgan, loud enough for Grace to hear. Shh, I hushed her. And yes, okay, I do miss the old Grace. She used to be a lot of fun. Staying up late watching old horror movies, last minute road trips, sneaking into the boys' preparatory academy, and getting chased out by the janitor. I smiled to myself. Those were good times. But that was before her brother died, and you know that made her get serious about getting into medicine. Yes, I know, you don't have to tell me the sudden stroke-sob story again, said Morgan, who seemed overly callous to Grace's loss just because she hadn't known Grace at the time of Samuel's death. I just wish she would be less, well, less the way she is. I want her to chill too, but it's not worth fighting with her about it. Now, do you want me to make another batch? I asked Morgan. Nah, she laughed a little. You're clearly too spaced out right now. I'll just have some instant oatmeal. I nodded at her, relieved. As Morgan busied herself in the kitchen, I bolted upstairs, shutting and locking my bedroom door behind me. Sitting down on my bed, I slipped the letter out of its fragile envelope. I placed the piece of paper in front of me and on my purple and green bedspread with shaking hands. The paper was old and delicate, and something deep inside of me knew that I'd be in danger if it was damaged in any way. I narrowed my eyes and let them scan the faded ink. June 18th. 1875. Dear Fiona, you do not know me, but I am writing to you as a friend. I pray that you take every word of my warning seriously, as I know grave danger will befall you if you do not listen. I know you will dismiss me at first. Everyone does, but I speak with God, and God speaks with me. The seat of all creation calls me by name and has told me yours. I have seen into your life as if I am looking into a window. I know that disaster lurks around every corner, but you are too willfully blind to see it. You have been spoon-fed untruths by those around you, and now you must vomit them up. I do not mean to criticize, but I must live up to my duty, the duty of telling you what I have seen through the window of your life. Now, for the next 14 days, I have three rules for you to live by. If you follow these rules perfectly, and in their entirety, you will most definitely avoid danger. If you do not, only you, and you alone, can protect yourself from the demons that may find themselves at your door or in your house. The first rule is to stop eating white meat for the next two weeks. You may eat pork or beef, but poultry and fish are strictly forbidden in this time. If you wish, you may not eat any meat at all, but until that time has come, do not eat what I have warned against. The second rule is that you must not ignore what you are seeing in the shadows and in the corner of your eye. Your mind is not playing tricks on you, no matter what you tell yourself. The third rule requires that you are not allowed to answer the front door on any day of the week that starts with the letter T. That's Tuesdays and Thursdays, unless the naming conventions for the days of the week have changed between my era and yours. The window into your life does not allow me to see all that occurs in your time, so I may be ignorant to certain changes in history. But what I have seen and what I have told you in this letter, I promise to you, is true. Do as I say, and you will survive. Your friend, Charlotte. My friend? I whisper aloud. What kind of joke is this? This couldn't be real, I thought. Yet every atom of my being was telling me that it was. 
The white meat and the answering the door rule were so bizarre and made no sense to me, but what Charlotte wrote about paying attention to what I saw in the shadows cut through me like a knife. I had been seeing something in the shadows, following me, hovering just out of sight. And as if Charlotte had read my thoughts or had seen a snapshot from my life, I had recently told myself, it's just my mind playing tricks on me. I was walking home from class around 5.30pm. It was twilight and not completely dark, so I felt safe walking instead of getting a ride. As I held my books to my chest and balanced my backpack on one shoulder, I felt like I was being watched. Most of the student body lives in the dorms, which are to the north side of campus. And after class gets out, everyone goes off in the opposite direction of where I live. Grace and Morgan don't have similar schedules to me, so I'm forced to make the six-block journey home alone. On the average day, it's rather delightful. There are kids playing in their front yards, fathers raking up leaves, mothers cooking in the kitchen or tending to their potted plants. But on this day, the streets were empty and quiet as if it was five in the morning, not five in the evening. And as I walked the maple-lined sidewalk towards my house, I heard a rustling of the branches from one of the hedges that lined the backyard of another cottage-style house behind me. I peered back and saw a black blur dash into the trees towards the hedge. I rushed back a few paces and looked behind the tree, but no one was there. Continuing my walk home, I picked up my pace, almost dropping my books, but I held them all together. I turned the corner and was about a block away from my front door when I decided to look back. The street lights had just turned on, but there was one about 15 yards behind me that was off and I swore I could see the outline of a person standing there, in all-black clothes, watching me. My heart was racing as I turned the key to my front door. I dropped my books at my feet and slammed the door closed. I then stared out the window for what felt like hours but must have only been ten minutes. No one approached the house or even walked by. I then just sat down on the couch and told myself, repeatedly, Your mind is just playing tricks on you. Your mind is just playing tricks on you. But as I held that letter, I felt validated in what I saw. Someone was out there. Okay, I'll listen, I decided. I'll follow these rules. It's only two weeks. How hard could it be? The following three nights, I struggled to sleep. Visions of a faceless man dressed in black came to me every time I closed my eyes. When I managed to sleep for a few hours, my dreams were filled with shadows, rustling sounds, and a mailbox full of letters from Charlotte. By Tuesday afternoon, I was out of it. I went through my daily routine on autopilot, finding myself seated at a table in the cafeteria with Morgan. She and Paul were deep in a conversation. Well, it wasn't much of a conversation, as, as Morgan was spewing gossip at him, and he just nodded along. And did you know, she began, that loser kid Marco from the freshman dorms got caught by a professor doodling naked ladies in class instead of taking notes. She let out a snort of a laugh. And, she went on, he was issued a citation by a security guard for sneaking around campus after hours. I bet he was trying to spy on one of the sorority houses or something. So creepy, she said. There was a sudden bang of the door to the back exit of the cafeteria. Someone in a black slipknot hoodie and a purple beanie rushed away. Are you serious, Morgan? Asked Paul, his boyish round face flushed with annoyance. That was probably Marco. He just overheard you badmouthing him and he ran away. Morgan rolled her eyes. 
whatever, he'll get over it. Plus, he shouldn't be that embarrassed. He's not as bad as this kid in my European history class who accidentally hit play on a porn video on his phone just as the professor was talking about the Holocaust. She let out another chortling laugh as Paul glanced in my direction, clearly fed up with her topic of conversation. Hey, why aren't you eating anything? He asked me. I don't know. I'm not supposed to, I said, almost nodding off. Really? You're not eating anything? Not even on Chicken Tenders Day? He wrinkled his forehead in confusion. Oh right, I said, looking down in front of me at the white cardboard container filled with fried and greasy slices of meat with a light barbecue sauce drizzled on them. Chicken tenders were my favorite food. Well, so was anything that was bland or fried. I'm a super picky eater. Anything green or even slightly mushy makes my stomach churn. I mostly survive on some form of breaded chicken, mozzarella sticks, nilla wafers, and the the occasional pediasure to make sure I don't die of malnutrition. My stomach flips with hunger and I reach for a piece, but as I put it to my lips, I stop myself. Charlotte's writing flashes before my eyes. Rule number one, no white meat. In my groggy state, I nudge the container away. I'm not in the mood. Both Morgan and Paul stare at me. What's wrong with you? That's all that you eat anyway, said Morgan. I guess I just got tired of them, I said. The two of them ignored my strange behavior and bit into their food. I sat there in silence, listening to the sounds of my boyfriend and roommate inhale their lunch. My mind wandered and I stared out the long floor-to-ceiling windows that make up the right wall of the cafeteria. The windows look out to the quad. There's a long green lawn dotted with benches and walkways for students to get to the seven main buildings of the campus. A boy with a yellow backpack and a sad excuse for a goatee got up and cleared his tray and walked out to the quad. He only made it a few paces away before he lurched over and vomited. But right in front of me at the next table, a small freshman girl with her hair in a ponytail got up from the table, clamped her hand over her mouth, and ran to the bathroom. The sounds of heaving and retching echoed through the cafeteria. A few tables away, a boy I recognized from my gothic literature class grabbed his friend's lunch pail and vomited into it. It's the chicken. I dash both Paul and Morgan's trays to the ground. Hey, don't do that. That was perfectly good food. Paul tried to protest, but was interrupted by several more students getting up from their seats and rushing down the hall to the bathroom. Those who didn't make it left yellowish puddles on the linoleum floor. We grabbed our stuff and rushed out of the cafeteria just as janitors and several administrators were rushing in. How much did you have? I asked. Like a piece and a half, answered Morgan. Just a few bites, said Paul. Okay, I think Paul is safe, but Morgan, you need to throw up what you just ate now, I demanded. Ew, no, I'll be fine. Those kids probably have a weak stomach or whatever, she smirked at me. I grabbed her by the back of her pink Victoria's Secrets hoodie and yanked her to the science building. Let go of me, she slapped at my hands, but I didn't give in. Down the hall, I kicked open the women's bathroom door and threw her into the handicap stall. Do it, you have to, I said. Fiona, you're being a freak right now, she yelled. Do it, I said with my back against the stall door, blocking her from leaving. Oh my god, you're such a drama queen. Fine, I'll do it, she said, kneeling next to the toilet. She turned back to look at me. You're gonna watch, she asked. Yes, to make sure you get it all out. She was about to protest again when I kneeled beside her. Morgan, you could die if you don't do this, I told her. She sucked in a breath and her face grew stern. I could tell she finally understood how serious the situation was. She put two fingers down her throat and gagged. She repeated this several more times until the contents of her stomach emptied into the bowl. When she was finished, I helped clean her up and we met Paul back in the hall. Are you okay? He asked us. She'll be fine. 
Hey, what are you guys doing? asked Grace, who had emerged from one of the classrooms next to us. And do you know what's going on out there? There's ambulances parked outside. Oh, thank God, I ran and hugged her. You didn't eat the chicken. She laughed. No, I barely have time to eat with my course load. Well, there's something wrong with the chicken in the cafeteria, I explained. We don't know what it is, but everyone started vomiting like crazy. That's insane, she said, as she looked out of the glass doors of the science building to see the quad filled with flashing lights of ambulances and police cars. All of our phones made a noise at once. It was an alert from the school. Due to a medical emergency, classes would be canceled for the remainder of the day. Ah, oh, that's a relief, said Grace. Let's go back to our place and chill, suggested Morgan. Plus, I feel like I need a shower and to brush my teeth after what happened. If by chill you mean study, then yeah, let's do that, said Grace. We all rolled our eyes at her. You know, the world isn't going to end if you don't get straight A's said Paul. Yeah, 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 she dismissed him. Walking home in the broad daylight with my boyfriend and closest friends, I felt safe. The strange figure I had seen in the shadows seemed like a far-off memory. Nothing could hurt me now, right? At home, Grace opened her chemistry book on the coffee table while Morgan, Paul, and I put on a movie. With the volume on low, of course. Soon I drifted off to sleep with my head in Paul's lap. I awoke two hours later. The movie, whose title I don't even remember, was over, and both Grace and Morgan were gone. How did you know? Paul was standing in the doorframe between the kitchen and the living room. Know what? I asked. That the chicken was poisoned, he said with a serious look in his eyes. I sat up, brushing my frizzing auburn hair to the side. They were poisoned? I asked. Yeah, I got a text from someone still on campus. The school went into lockdown just after we left. Someone put antifreeze in the sauce that was on the chicken. His face was hard and emotionless. Holy crap, I said. I didn't know it was poisoned, I just knew something was wrong. I just had this feeling. What feeling? He took two steps closer to me. I stood up and moved away from him. You know, like that urban legend about people who canceled their flights on September 11th because they had a bad feeling? Stuff like that, I said. Yeah, I heard about that, he said, his face warming up. My friend's mom, actually, was supposed to be one of those people. She had a business trip to Manhattan planned and, on a whim, decided to reschedule the meeting to the following week. I remember we were all sitting in class and the teacher turned on the TV just as the second tower fell and he turned white as a ghost. Your teacher turned on the TV? I asked. Yeah, he said. Who would show a terror attack to a bunch of kindergartners? What? He wrinkled his brow. I wasn't in kinder. He stopped himself. We are the same age. I was in kindergarten when that happened. You must have been too, right? I explained. Oh yeah, right. He traced the edges of his face with his hand, like he was stroking an invisible beard. Yeah, it was weird, I guess, that she showed it to us. Maybe I thought I was older, he said with a slight shrug. We both gave each other a look. I didn't know what that look was at the time, but now I know it was the look gamblers give each other when they're about to call each other's bluff. Paul grabbed his things and left without kissing me goodbye. I was afraid that he thought I had something to do with what happened in the cafeteria, but I didn't care. I ran upstairs and reread Charlotte's letter. How did you know? I asked her. I was lost in concentration, studying her words, trying to understand how someone who claimed to be writing from 143 years ago would know this much detail about my life. And then I heard the doorbell ring. I got off my bed, about to make my way downstairs when I remembered it was Tuesday and someone was at my front door.
The Dead Letters Podcast is written and produced by me, VP Morris. If you enjoyed today's episode, please help support the show by leaving a five-star review. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.